Bible Podcast. My name is Russell Todd. This is episode 11 and we are in the offices of IndieCube, a Wales-based, but not exclusively to Wales, Community Benefit Society. We're from loan of the space at the St Mary Street office in the Cardiff City Centre. Community Development Podcast, it's something I started last year to share the learning between practitioners, to promote the value of community development as an approach but the values, the principles that underpin our practice. A little bit of housekeeping, we had a, a podcast last time out with John Rose, director of the Big Lottery in Wales, which was fascinating from my point of view, having been out of the funding game or the, the frontline coalface of, of funding and accessing grants and things for a few years. It was fascinating to hear John's perspective as a, a funder, a significant funder, both in terms of amount of money that it donates to causes in Wales, but the Big Lottery across the UK. But interesting to hear how one of their strap lines for their strategic vision for funding for the lottery in Wales about putting people in the lead, what that actually means in practice, and what was really heartening was the the extent to which community development is a significant way in making that happen. So that was episode 10, that's that's on the website and on iTunes. Um, but I have the very great pleasure today of Dr. Sean Ed Pierce from... Uh, the wonderfully titled WISERD, uh, W-I-S-E-R-D, the Wales Institute for Social and Economic Research Data and Methods from Cardiff University. Hello. Hello. One thing I've learned, sort of doing a little bit of work with, with universities actually in the last couple of years, you really like an acronym, don't you? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and WISERD is one of the better ones. Sean, who are you? What is your background? What are your, your research specialisms? Uh, I am a researcher at Wizard, as you said, at Cardiff University, and my specialism is devolved social policy. Um, And within that, I'm particularly interested in community development, as uh, it has been quite a central focus of social policy in Wales since the Welsh Government came into existence in 1999. So my background, as I say, is devolved social policy, but I have spent a lot of time thinking about communities first, community development, and particularly um, issues around state-led and state-sponsored community development, um, of which I think Wales is a really interesting case. At the moment I'm working on two projects which um, I'll happily talk about today. One of them is around whether or not Wales was different um, or is different to England in terms of its state-sponsored community development approach within social policy. Um, And the second is on evaluation um, within community development and how evaluation can be a way of reinforcing hierarchies. You mentioned the Welsh Government coming into being in 1999. We had, a, had a, a interesting couple of exchanges with people from North America, both from the United States and mm. from Canada. And it's great, actually, that there's a bit more of a, an international audience, without maybe getting ahead mm. of myself a little bit here. Because the UK traditionally has been a very centralised state. Mm. And so for devolution as a, as, a, as a political project to happen in the 90s, mid to late 90s, mm. with the new Labour government that was in UK at that time, the Welsh government came into being in, in 1999 with... I think it's fair to say, suppose constitutionally speaking, in terms of governance, a relatively sort of feeble and limited range of competencies, certainly in comparison to Scotland and to a certain extent to Northern Ireland as well within the UK and Great Britain. Then that's changed. But what was really fascinating was that the programme like Communities First came about really very, very early on. Mm, mm. It was backed by a broad political consensus mm. around basically focusing on the needs of the most deprived, most disadvantaged communities in Wales at that point. Mm. Um, which by extension, when we look at the data, some of the most disadvantaged in Western Europe, within the European Union, however we want to sort of, whatever scale that we want to kind of refer to. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's persistently stubborn mm. forms of poverty, 
um, in WhatsApp and not exclusively a lot of post-industrial communities of which Wales disproportionately has quite a, a lot of those and an over-reliance on that sort of primary steel and, mm. and, and coal in the main industries previously but then we've also got issues around the decline of you know, domestic tourism within mm. sort of London and North Wales coast and so on and so forth. Mm. So that's what Communities First was. Mm. It was entirely state-sponsored as you say. What else do people need to know in terms of this broad construct around state-sponsored community development activity or what sometimes people will call regeneration. Mm. We explored that term within terms of community development with, with Chris Ashman a couple of episodes ago as well. What else people listening to this need to understand from that state-sponsored mm-hmm. element? Well, I suppose historically, um, state-sponsored community development goes back to the 1960s, um, and particularly 1969, um, when community development projects were launched to drive progressive social change in the UK, and that was under Harold Wilson. And the projects had a really strong emphasis on social action as a means of creating more responsive local services and encouraging self-help. So there's that sort of, almost, you can begin to see the use of community development as as an approach by government, so to support public services, for example. But the last project came to an end then in 1978, which marked a sort of period of disinterest in community-focused interventions just before the Tories came into power in 1979, and they didn't really resurface again until around the 1980s, still under the Tory government, but that was following the social unrest, um, and Michael Heseltine was leading on that at the time. So again, there's a sort of a state response to issues and problems Um, using community development as a tool. So community as a social policy concern sort of re-emerged then and it wasn't really then until the late 1990s that the notion of developing communities as key to tackling poverty emerged. So I suppose community development um, since the 1960s has been a tool of government for various different reasons and in various different ways but it wasn't until the 1990s really that poverty came into focus there and um, and then obviously we saw the emergence of Tony Blair's community agenda within the third way and that's where Communities First sort of came from and also the English equivalent New Deals for Communities but the really interesting question is was Communities First any different from New Deals for Communities or from the English approach then we begin to see the sort of as you say, albeit a weak constitutional arrangement in Wales, the influence of that constitutional arrangement starting to come out. And I would say Communities First was very different, particularly because of its focus on community development. So New Labour's conceptualisation of community was drawn from Etzioni's brand of communitarianism, which was developed in policy implementation, and most notably by Giddens was framed within a discourse of rights and responsibilities with communities being identified where deficits existed. So there was very much an undercurrent of blame, if you like, within that um, and it highlighted kind of neoconservative underpinnings and a moralistic tone within the approach taken to New Deals for Communities. And the third way approach was enacted in policy through discourses of participatory policy making and so on, which was kind of encouraging on the surface, if you like. So there was a lot of optimism around Blair's agenda amongst the community development community. But Labour in Wales, it sought a different approach to that. So there was a less moralistic element to it. And that was really tied closely to the clear red water, Roger Morgan's much more egalitarian kind of... Um, trying to make Wales different and it it moved from a kind of piecemeal approach to policy making in Wales to a clear purpose, a drive to to move Wales away from from that kind of more neoconservative underpinning that was driving New Labour's 
policies. I mean, a lot of critique around New Labour was the kind of idea of a smokescreen of socialism hiding a very Thatcherite kind of agenda. And there was effort in Wales to move away from that. So Communities First was different from its English and Scottish equivalent, I'd argue. So the Scottish equivalent was, I think, Scottish communities, and it was absorbed into the housing department within two years of of it. So that that didn't really go anywhere. But the architects of Communities First, who were... um, Adamson and Barbara Castle and also Dearden um, who wrote that Regenerating Deprived Communities document which really laid out the foundations for Communities First. Uh, They talked about a community-led approach to addressing poverty but not to tackling poverty so really importantly they were talking about um, sort of overcoming the complex effects of poverty without overcoming the poverty and deprivation itself because they acknowledge that communities can't do that. Mm. So there wasn't that blame element to it and there was a clear difference in the approach taken in Wales then at the time because of that. Welsh social policy was divergent back in the early 2000s despite, as you say, its weakness. Mm. However, when the Cabinet Secretary for Community and Children announced his intentions to end Communities First, it was based on the failure to, del- to deliver wholesale change in terms of tackling poverty, which he said it was set up to do. Um, and I would argue that it wasn't initially set up, but somewhere along the way, it moved from its divergent beginnings in Wales under de- devolution much more to be in line with the approach taken in England, really. So yeah, if we're, uh, if we're talking about perhaps what you might call a moment of alignment between Welsh ideology, devolved ideology and social policy, community first is a really good example of how there was an alignment back in the early days that slowly moved out of alignment over time. And that's really interesting to think about why that happened and why that change occurred, despite, as you say, increasing powers the Government of Wales Act 2017, mm. now tax-raising powers. A Labour government has been in power for 18 years in Wales. Why that change when, on paper perhaps, it all points towards that alignment remaining strong? In coalition for yes, a of couple course, of years on a yeah, different yeah. couple of occasions, of course, yeah. it probably needs to be pointed out for clarity. The broad point absolutely stands. I worked in the programme for my own 15 years in different capacities and in different parts of Wales as well and at different scales and that chimes very much with my uh, experience working on, on, on the programme and, and knowing people as I do who, who, who live in Communities First areas, who are involved, who are activists in that, mm. I'm pretty sure there's a lot of people that would also recognise that from their lived perspective mm-hmm. of the, of, of the programme. I think what would be curious as well would be to, and it could be colleagues for example of yours within Wizard with other focus on maybe sort of health or social care or education mm-hmm. would be fascinating to kind of compare this kind of community policy mm-hmm. and that alignment yeah. or that change in alignment mm-hmm. within community policy with other disciplines and other sectors, Absolutely. the extent to which that has also happened or not yeah. in education yeah. or in social care or, or whatever. Absolutely. Um, yeah. But we're not going to talk about other things, we're going to talk about community. So you talk about Roger Morgan. Roger Morgan wasn't technically the first first minister, he but he, he's probably identified with, not unfairly either, in my opinion, with legitimising the Assembly yeah. within Wales, where mm. frankly democracy is relatively young. Yeah. 
but I think what's interesting is in terms of communities first and sort of other related community policy, I don't ever really remember him taking much of a lead personally for it or being involved or articulating a huge amount about it. I think he recognised in order for devolution to become legitimate and devolved government to be increasingly legitimate, you had to focus on what are the basics, education, health and the economy, mm-hmm. I guess, and the most important things. Yeah, yeah. Certainly later on, more senior politicians within Welsh Government did tend to speak about communities first and would be asked to be drawn on communities first, its future and, and things mm-hmm. like that. But Roger Morgan himself, from my memory, unless I, you can you can correct me here, Seanette, if you well, like, I don't ever remember him speaking much about the programme. No, I think you're right. In terms of his public-facing priorities, he was certainly more focused on the core social policy mm. in Wales, social policies in mm. Wales. But plenary records from 2000, 2001, um, do show him talking supportively about communities first and about Adamson and Castle's vision. He echoed what they said about empowerment, mm. capacity building and enabling people to make the best of their themselves and their communities through support rather than use of community yeah. development as a tool. So I think he was on board with that approach, but I think you're right, he, his speeches didn't necessarily include it. Some of the visionary documents laid out early on didn't have a great deal about communities first in them but I think uh, he was broadly supported. Yeah and, and there was a consensus I think or certainly a public facing uh, consensus to the programme or at the very least to be needing to do something and I've always been curious as to the extent to which the narrow referendum result in 1997 that only narrowly swung mm. in favour of devolution and very very narrowly. Yeah. 50.5. 50 point something, yeah, against 49 <laughs> point something. But I've always been minded to think that part of the origins of the programme, if not necessarily where Barbara Castle and Dave Adamson were coming from in terms of what they were looking at from the community up, but if you look at it from a nation-building perspective, from mm. a point of view of sort of governance and I guess in the broadest sense, that actually this was a way of sort of saying we are listening to the communities and this isn't just about economic drivers mm-hmm. and it's about Cardiff and Capital City and some of the kind of the buzz things. Yeah. And of course, some of the policy to do a New Deal and some of the new labour in England, some of that rhetoric was very much, it felt very urban. Mm-hmm. And Wales isn't an urban country in the main. Mm-hmm. I wondered whether a bit of Communities First was about trying to help legitimise devolution mm-hmm. by sort of saying, yes, we're listening to so-called disadvantaged communities or working-class communities. Yeah. And what struck me as well, and it only dawned on me in the last sort of year or so, the date at which communities first ended, at the end of March 2018, earlier mm-hmm. this year, and the point at which the programme started is a longer period of time than the programme starting in the end of the miners' strike. Wow. And so if we're looking at it from the point of view of certainly post-industrial communities mm-hmm. and mining communities at that, mm-hmm. but we've had contraction of... of of primary industry since then with mm. the Vale Steelworks closing. Yeah. The scars of that trauma, and I think personally that is what it was, and having worked in coalfield areas or former coalfield areas and worked with people who remember that, who were involved in that struggle, I think that's quite telling. And I think that there is an element of the programme of Communities First that is a directly in response to that and a way of saying, listen, we, we hear you. And I think what's interesting is that we're talking over a period there of 30 years between now and the miners' strike. Yeah. And social policy needs a long time to bed in. And I think that's the other thing with Communities First. In that first administration between 1999 and 2003, the programme started. There was a lot of rhetoric, but there was a lot of policy statements and reference to it being 
multi-generational, being long-term. Mm -hmm. 20 years was verbally mentioned, definitely by the then minister, Edwina Hart, although you tend to find more sort of 10 and 15 year references in policy and in writing. Was that new? Well, I think that was one of the major things that made the programme stand out. It wasn't different from New Deals for Communities, which ran for just over 10 years anyway. But the idea of core revenue funding over the long term was radically different at the mm. time. And again, a key point that Adamson and Castle made clear that they thought was important, if not crucial, to the, to the programme. Um, so it was new at the time, yes. Um, going back to your previous point about the use of the programme as a kind of justification of the Welsh Government's existence, I think that's a really, really interesting and important point when we're talking about state-led community development, because yeah, that idea of voice was certainly there um, in terms of the purpose of the programme, to give voice to local communities. And it was always local as well. The programme was implemented at micro-geographical level, which was kind of pertaining to Wales's other history, mm. non-politicised history around community, and also to the vast amount of local authorities that are in, in Wales. But the, that kind of the geography and the mm. characteristics of Wales, there was the idea that the Welsh Government was listening to the voices of local communities. That was really important. I think you're spot on in saying that it was part of the justification and legitimisation for the existence of the Assembly itself, as was delivering the programme on such a large scale which is colloquially called the Big Bang because it was implemented in over 100, 142 small communities pretty much overnight. And gerrymandered to and a certain extent as well so that yeah. every local authority had at least one area which, having spoken to some of the architects of the programme, the non-political, non-government sort of architects mm. of the programme, and some of those haven't been named in the discussion, that was a surprise mm. and actually was almost either side of like a political recess mm had been unagreed and was agreed to go out in this way, whereas it had previously been agreed to very much more phase it out. Yeah. Although interestingly, and I know of at least one or two areas where, in spite of that big bang at government level, it was insisted on rolling it out mm. locally. So although there was a big bang, one of my critiques of that is to say that it wasn't a big bang everywhere. Yes. It was phased out within certain localities and certain local authorities but yes no the general point stands it and I think that's part of the Welsh government being young and weak um, because the power base of the local authorities in Wales partly because of Wales Wales's history as well um, was much stronger than say any local authority in England the power that local authorities had over the Welsh government in its early days was you know, ten times the power that local authorities in England would have over a central government, if not more. And so that does make Wales different, that kind of um, appease, appeasing approach. But that's so, not just, that's not, to my mind, that's not just the relative strength of local authorities versus a new, still in its infancy, devolved central government administration. Hmm. It's also, I think, a reflection of the power base of Labour Party politics yes, in Wales as well. Yeah. And then the links between that and the newly established Welsh Government as well. The Yes for Wales campaign in 1997 yeah. spearheaded by Labour councillors yeah. with Plaid. Yeah. Kind of. So I think it's interesting when we talk about the programme in those micro geographies. Mm. Quite diverse, rural Wales, post-industrial form of mining areas in the coalfield, traditional in inverted commas, sort of inner city, disadvantage and inequality. 
And we're talking about those microgeographical areas. The programme had been criticised for this about bandets and the sugar craft and the flower arranging courses and all of those sorts of things, all of which I would more than happy argue the merits of in terms of capacity building as a process and as an approach. But for all of the talk of all of that, I think it's quite interesting to be able to look at it at that microgeographical level and those very, very kind of you know, fun, fluffy activities. And actually, it's related to this huge political project that's related constitutionally to the to the UK. That's involving you know central government. Mm-hmm. You know, and actually through just one program we can reach not through a huge number of degrees of separation, sugarcraft activities in a community centre, yeah. in a community in Pont de Prix, for instance, which I think is kind of fascinating. It is. It's absolutely really really fascinating. It's I guess the delivered promise of devolution as well isn't it the closer interface between state and society almost but as you say that kind of that link that goes all the way Mm. up can't see that (laughs) that goes all the way up Um, it's doing inverted commas quotation marks (laughs) doesn't work in a podcast no absolutely and i know you've written about this via other channels in terms of like you know the city region Mm. and the city region deal that we have both for cardiff and swansea bay in, in in wales uh I'm not sure that that is anywhere near connected to communities, or you can see anywhere near the same degree of separation between central government and that and communities. Yet the rhetoric and a lot of the narrative is that this will be about prosperity for all and it will increase wealth and it will increase prosperity for people, irrespective of where they're living in that city region. And privately, I'm skeptical of that. Whereas Community First, we can, but Community First has been ended. Community First didn't deliver. And you said yourself, it didn't deliver the certain outcomes that it was intended to or perceived to be uh, yeah, not I, delivering on. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it, it was intended to no. actually at all, but I think that um, over time that became yeah. a bit of a, a benchmark. Yeah, I, com- I completely agree. And one of the really interesting things, things that's coming out of some of the research we're doing at Wizard at the moment, um, I'm researching with colleagues um, Helen Blakely, Christala Sophocleus, and Eva Elliott, and we're finding that, and this links to what you're talking about on the local level and what's actually what's happening, I guess, on the ground. We found this kind of notion of spaces of resistance to state-led community development. So, despite perhaps the um, what became quite a prescriptive approach to monitoring the program over time, from its kind of um, community-led aspirations to its community-focused kind of end and demise within that we've found that community development work has kind of um, struggled and wrestled and created pockets of resistance to the prescriptive approach and the state-driven increasing um, state-driven demands for outcomes and showing what you've done Um, and actually this community development work the sugar craft and so on is carrying on and it's actually so while um, while the ideology of Welsh government and the social policy of Communities First has gone out of alignment, the community development spaces have actually seemed to have managed in small pockets, not in every case, but in many cases, to have um, persevered in the same way and stayed within that alignment. So that's really interesting in itself as well, because these small ground level initiatives are happening as part of a bigger programme and because of much broader policy aims at devolved and central government level but also creating their own kind of resilient spaces Mm. of resistance to the big policy changes which is remarkable actually 
It's also ironic then when you hear about notions of creating, in inverted commas, empowered communities. However you go about it by a social policy, communities that are more in control of things that matter to them and, and determinants of their well-being. Notions of that, certainly within Wales, but I think you can see it elsewhere within the UK in social policy. It's ironic that those efforts within policy or those notional efforts within policy, because in Wales, for example, they haven't quite seen through to a policy framework mm. post-communities first. But mm. these spaces of resistance are happening. It's almost in spite of the social policy that has been, frankly, hegemonic for quite some time in Wales, albeit the programme did change. Mm. Because in the early years, and there was an irony when the programme reconfigured post-credit crunch, post-recession in around 2012, to be more reliant on the public purse mm. um, and losing the mechanisms by which you could lever in additional finance yeah. from whatever source to complement that public state budget that was underpinning the programme. So there's an interesting paradox there, I think. Mm. It's interesting that spaces residence, I love as a phrase, is happening in spite of that framework. Yeah. And then over here, the government are talking about trying to create such spaces where people are more self-determining yeah, yeah. and designing of the things that matter to them and so, and, and so on. Yeah. The government still isn't listening, or at the very least it isn't responsive enough. Mm-mm change really began in 2009 when the idea of Communities Next sort of um, started. I know Communities Next didn't actually last as a term, but um, but the concept of, well, it, it the core revenue fund, it, funding became, a lot, a lot of that became part of an outcomes funding pot that then partnerships had to bid for. Um, so there was competition introduced mm. into the programme, for better or worse. Um, but as you say then, over time, the demand of the programme increased. So yeah, it's really interesting that while dates are still trying to talk about creating spaces of resistance by sort of almost co-opting them through policy, they're making it harder for that resistance to occur. Yeah. Community development workers and the workforce, you know, they'd be you know, extremely well-placed to find those spaces of resistance and find where that's happening and just begin to, well, there's a will to, I suppose, and a consent to, to join some of that up mm. and to upscale it to a certain extent. But I think you know, the danger there is always that one is then doing sort of government's bidding by trying to find, government at any level, by just trying to do their bidding in, in terms of finding economies of scale that suit them mm. and don't actually suit the people mm. the people involved, obviously. It harks back to that classic, and we, we talked about this in the very, very first podcast with, with Alan Twelve Trees, about how it's that nexus of working for and against the state. And I think Communities First, in its very, very first iteration as it was being rolled out, I think is a good example of that, by taking what was you know £40 million per annum budget and spending it at a very, as you say, micro geographical level. Yeah. I think one of the frustrations is the extent to which it ended up just moved some of the poverty around because of its focus on employability mm. and employment as certainly the primary, but increasingly, to my mind, it was left to be one of the, the sole determinants of, of poverty in these communities. And of course, the economy is changing and, and you know, where we are based now, IndyCube, you know, fully recognise this, work is changing. Mm. Casualisation of the uh, labour market. Absolutely. And so the wages and the pay that were on offer for people in these disadvantaged communities wasn't helping them get out of poverty and all of the statistics for in-work poverty with it. across the UK it's not just a Welsh phenomenon across the UK probably across a lot of post-industrial or countries with post-industrial communities in the western world are finding this and I think the frustration then of working but it not paying gets played out in some quarters by some people in this 
lurched to the right, this you know, populism, and it's just kind of this frustration that life is not providing the rewards financially, materially, emotionally, in terms of health, that they were promised, yeah. or that they, perhaps not unreasonably, would you know, expect to be the case. And harder and harder, therefore, to change your life situation, which means the polarisation between the rich and the poor is increasing, as we know, and also the, um, the rise of in-work poverty. So despite you know, employment being at an all-time high at the moment, in-work poverty is also at an all-time high, and so people are working, but they're still as poor as they were. But now more time but, poor. Yeah. Or is it affecting family responsibilities and caring responsibilities? Yeah. I think that's interesting for social policy because yeah. social policy, certainly if we look at it through the prism of communities first, historically tended to, yes, it recognised employment was part of it, but it was but one part of it. Yeah. And in those early days, we talked about community safety. Mm. We talked about active community, civil society, you know, all those sorts of, mm. sorts of things. We talked about education and learning, both informal learning, formal learning, mm. learning pathways, keeping people in school, mm. attendance, things like that. Yeah. But social policy... I don't know, what, what are the challenges of social policy when social policy focuses on all of these things over here, yet it's probably quite toothless if it's going to try and impact on the wage rates mm. or things that mm. are very much the domain of, traditionally speaking, you know, the labour market and mm. you know, economic development. Absolutely, and there's a huge issue with expectations there, which again, I think the architects of Communities First perfectly understood that you can't overcome poverty through community development and you shouldn't try to but you can help people overcome the adverse effects of poverty slowly over time and empower people but as you say there, yeah, there's a huge issue with expectation particularly within the communities first program and there's only so much a government can do against global market mm. forces and cha- of change but just going back to the initial kind of Welsh Labour ideology in the early days, the ideological basis was universalism as opposed to means testing, mm. equality of outcome in place of equality of opportunity, and cooperation for the common good rather than competition. And some of the really positive examples that have been cited are things like free school breakfasts, free swimming, prescriptions, hospital parking in Wales. So there are elements of Welsh social policy, just going back to our Mm. original question, that are Mm. different and that also are trying to mitigate some of those almost unmitigatable forces. But I can remember, for instance, in places like Blind and Gwent and Merthyr Tidville, where that universalism or that egalitarianism, and used the term egalitarian in respect of Roger Morgan, maybe at government level in Wales... Sounds fine. It sounds reasonable, and, and that you know, I'm, I'm kind of intuitively inclined towards that. But when that program and the resources are being allocated at a local level, so for argument's sake, Blind and Gwent, where much of the local authority area was communities first, mm. that universalism, certainly in the spatial sense, then has mm. to, still has to be broken up. And so mm. there were tensions within it at the local level, and I think it was always mm. a frustration that that seemed to just be batted down the line. Right. Yeah, yeah, from Welsh government down to those local authorities, mm-hmm. and then you know some of the other stakeholders locally, and that actually it was to be essentially mediated and dealt with at that local level. Mm, again, yeah, the it, responsibility without power. Then. Yeah, and and so then you had the program bending notion. I think was one of the responses to that. Well, actually, was probably the principal response to that. Other things as well as a way of trying to bring the public sector to the table a little bit more. The Outcomes Fund was another way of then t- mm. kicking that on even more and bringing that element of competition in. But what was interesting was the tensions that that universalism had at the 
the local level. Mm. And I, you know, I remember mm. it well. You know, labor labor councillors struggling to recognise that, well, actually, with the exception of some of the, the upland farms within a county borough, the rest of it, where we actually lived, the streets, the communities, the neighbourhoods, mm. maybe some town centres because of the, the, the more uh, or the less dense sort of resident population yeah. uh, within those, the rest of the county borough is communities first. Mm. And the resource is only so much. Yeah. Well, as we know, communities, just going back to the resource, I suppose communities first was underfunded. Also, I'm not saying that um, more funding would have resolved those tensions that you're talking about. Mm. I doubt very much that they would have. Um, but yeah, that's a really interesting point. And I think it's the sharp edge of double devolution, which I think David Miliband coined in, mm. in 1998. It's that shifting of responsibility mm. without power mm-hmm. downwards. And so it's all well and good to have universalism as opposed to means testing but who takes responsibility for implementing that mm-hmm. and yeah absolutely spot on and that was another issue with communities first i think that ran throughout the lifespan yeah and again program. i think it just reinforces this point about how fascinating it is that the communities first for all of its sugar craft and its its fluffiness for which it was criticized an awful lot another example of how it was the crucible for some very philosophical ideological government level Related to constitutional as well, and I'll make a point mm. about that in a moment. And it's not huge degrees of separation between what we're talking about at quite high level, mm. philosophical level, and issues at that level, and how they then get applied mm. through this through this program. Yeah. I think in terms of constitution, Dave Adamson has been spoken of a number of times. I would love to do a podcast with Dave, and we've had some conversations about it. But uh, he's in Australia these days. Yeah. He's spoken and, and incredibly articulately and, and and assertively about Welsh government. Wales, people in Wales need to get real about poverty and inequality, that without having control for tax and benefit system, welfare systems, we lack the levers fundamentally to really effectively redistribute wealth. So it's then done through other things like maybe city region and it's done through grants for pupils who are in receipt of free school dinners. And we find these proxies that we trust the data for. And we try to find ways in which we can redistribute that way. And it's a bit piecemeal and it's a bit forced and it's a bit clunky, because, but it's done in spite of lacking these fundamental mm-hmm. levers. And Dave Adamson has said we need to get real about that. And I think what's interesting for me then in a constitutional sense is that, well, actually, why not have the debate and the discussion about whether we should have those? But it tends to be off the, the agenda more often than not in Wales. Mm-hmm. And I think that, is, again, is about then tensions within the Labour Party, not just within Wales, the Labour Party across the UK mm. as to what is palatable and what is acceptable mm. and what is going to be part of that devolution settlement. Mm. And I think that is reflected in why we very rarely see the word poverty in any policy and lexicon and language that Welsh Government uses these days. Mm. It's just dropped off the radar, mm. which I think is a shame. But what it does mean, I think frustratingly, is that if we take it off the radar, it means potentially we can avoid talking about the constitutional aspects of dealing with poverty in Wales mm. because that suits the real meaty for me yeah I, 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 absolutely and then this is an unashamedly yeah. political point but it's not a partisan political point if we don't talk about poverty and we don't talk about the main drivers for tackling it and eradicating it more so then we can avoid having that debate about something that's constitutional is a bit difficult and would annoy people up the road in London. And, mm. and I, think that's, I think that's a shame. And I think that is something that, for me personally, was, was increasingly a disappointment and a frustration with. Communities first, you know, you're working on it and it's your career because you feel then you're only ever manipulating things at the margins. And I know Martin Hoban, for example, has, has, has talked you know, incredibly 
critically mm. about that, as has Barbara Castle mm. and Dave, and it was great mm. to see Barbara Castle again up in the Guernsey Murtha a couple of months ago, work that some colleagues you've mentioned, people like Eve Raleigh at Martin mm. O'Neill yeah, at yeah. Cardiff University have been involved in, you know, to see her calling in in an area that was where she cut amongst other areas, mm. where she cut her teeth mm. in terms of community development. Absolutely, um, and regeneration, as it was called. Some time ago, <laughs> um, at the risk of um, exposing her age, but she's an important person in the history of social policy in Wales, and it's great that we've been able to mention her in, in the course of this. In summary, spaces of resistance, which I love. I've got this idea of kind of freedom fighters, little pockets of resistance mm-hmm. around yeah. Wales, hiding out in, in the woods. Gorilla. Gorilla, Gorilla yeah. yeah. Well, I'm, 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 I'm quite minded to that, that sort of approach actually almost as a response indirectly or directly to what was the phrase you used in terms of alignment a moment of alignment between ideology and social policy fascinating any thoughts these might be personal might be professional informed by the research informed by maybe some emergent findings or gut feelings maybe where are we going are things going to realign well i think that actually unfortunately a great deal depends on Brexit and which powers we manage to get back off central government, if that's not too controversial to say. But just the issue of devolved power in Wales is very much, as you say, live and kicking at, at this moment, with the negotiations taking place over things like ports and fisheries. There's huge implications for social policy in Wales because of Brexit. But is it necessary getting the sort of the column inches or the, the exposure in terms of the media then? Because some of the other issues tend to be a little bit more cut and dried, a bit more black and white. Yeah. You either have control of quotas or we don't. And, and things like yeah, that, I yeah. suppose, in terms of fisheries, for argument's sake. Immigration, we either let them in or we, let, we keep them out, which perhaps is a media's approach to these things in terms of simplifying it, I guess. But mm. social policy is just that little bit more complex. And I'm sure there's complexities to other things as well, of course. But given the extent to which I think you've quite effectively demonstrated how devolution has affected social policy, mm-hmm. the extent to which the powers and the competencies Welsh Government has in Wales will clearly determine social mm. policy going forward. Yeah. And that remains to be To be seen, seen. and it does depend mm. a great deal on Brexit. The other thing to think about is our new leader, a potential new leader, Karen Jones, is stepping down after mm. this term. But again, he can only lead mm. a party within the framework of the powers that mm. the Welsh mm. Government mm. has. Mm. So, yes, uh, watch this space. Watch this Brexit. Yes, yes. Well, it's affecting increasingly a lot of things. Charlotte, it's an absolute pleasure to have you. Maybe we can get around the mic again in, who knows, six months, six six years' time to see how it's all (laughs) panning out. I feel we've strayed onto the territory of Dan and Nathan from Desolation Radio. Um, They tend to cover the political science aspects of this with a bit more of a plomb certainly political science is my background but um, I think you know there is a direct correlation between what we are able to do constitutionally speaking in Wales and what we need to do and then what we choose to do in terms of the social policy uh, what we need to do in terms of you know the, the, the social need and the economic need that's out there um, so hopefully we've been able to kind of articulate uh, in the last sort of three quarters of an hour or so the extent to which Communities First is a really good crucible to see how that was played out. I think all too often it was just perceived as this programme that's on the margins and it's just doing this fluffy stuff in communities, whereas actually I think it's a, it's a much more, potentially in hindsight, a much more important sort of signifier of other things. An incredibly bold social policy for the Welsh Government at, at its inception. It was incredibly brave and bold. It sent me bald, I know that much. (laughs) Seanette, until next time, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much.